Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, let's let's take a minute here to, to listen to the, uh, the music of the spheres. It's oh, lovely, nice. right? Yeah. We forget that planets, stars, and quasars are all giving off radio signals. And if you have the right equipment, you can actually eavesdrop on space and hear all these sort of bubbles and squeaks. Yeah, we're talking about the, the sonification of, uh, of this radio wave uh, information. And uh, this kind of stuff has made the rounds on the Internet uh, time and time again. Before the Internet, it was even uh, available uh, on vinyl. And uh, it's it is it's haunting. It's beautiful. It's like the the sound of space whales, um, you know, singing in the cosmos. But just imagine, just imagine that you go to eavesdrop on space one day, mm-hmm. and you hear something that is ferociously loud. Yeah, something that sounds a little like this. Uh, okay, maybe not exactly yeah. that. Yeah, that that uh, I want to be clear is is not an, an actual sonification of anything from our universe. That is a creation uh, by our uh, our sound designer uh, and producer Noel Brown. And we wanted to include that clip because we're not exactly sure what this space roar, which actually exists, mm-hmm. sounds like. Yeah. So all we know, it's six times louder than anything else out there, and it is a mystery. It is this haunting, perhaps even disturbing on an intellectual level, uh, noise. Just discordia emanating from the universe. And, uh, we throw our best theories at it and nothing so far has really stuck. Uh, you, you can't help but let your imagination run wild, of course. Like I instantly, um, I instantly turned to, uh, Lovecraft's, H.P. Lovecraft's, uh, demon sultan Azazoth, which was, quote, that amorphous blight of nethermost confusion which blasphemes and bubbles at the center of all infinity, who gnaws hungrily amidst the muffled, maddening beat of vile drums. Nethermost mm, confusion. Yeah. I'm going to have to use that. Um, yeah, and this is not the first time that we've had this kind of nice, deep mystery to chew on, right? Like, we have had sounds emanating from the depths of the ocean, from the depths of space now, um, that make us wonder what exactly is going on. And so that's what we're going to try to do today, plumb the depths of this sound and figure out what it is and where it's coming from. Indeed. We're going to examine this universe-wide phenomenon of the space roar. Now, let me just clarify a couple of things to start off. When we're talking about listening to the space roar or any of these uh, these cosmic sounds, the sonification of the data, uh, you know, we're not talking about actual sound traveling through space. Sound travels in waves, just like light, just like heat. But unlike light and heat, sound travels by making molecules vibrate. So for sound to actually travel, say from a ringing bell to your ear, there has to be a molecule-filled medium for it to travel through. Here on Earth, air molecules provide the pathway, but in space, particularly deep space, there are just no molecules to vibrate. That's right. So what we are relying on when we talk about eavesdropping in space, we're relying on radio waves. And in 1931, American physicist Carl Jansky first detected radio static from our very own Milky Way galaxy. And similar emission from other galaxies creates this kind of background hiss of radio noise. So when we talk about radio waves, what are we talking about? Well, they are one of what we call electromagnetic waves. So, electromagnetic waves include light, radio, 
X-ray, gamma ray, and infrared and ultraviolet. And the thing that differentiates them is their wavelength. So a wavelength of, say, light stretched out over a long, 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 long distance ratchets down its energy and then it shifts it into a radio wave. So in other words, radio waves are just another form of light. And this means that light from a distant galaxy can't perceive by sight, but it can be heard by radio telescopes. Hence all those bubbles and squeaks we can hear when a radio telescope homes in on, say, Uranus or Jupiter. So that brings us to Arcade. Arcade being a 2006 uh, uh, NASA um, experiment uh, uh, developed by uh, the Goddard Space Flight Center. Arcade stands for Absolute Radiometer for Cosmology, Astrophysics, and Diffuse Emission. And essentially, it's uh, it was it was a high altitude balloon payload designed to study the early universe by measuring the frequency spectrum of the cosmic microwave background, or CMB and searching for signals from the first stars to form after the Big Bang. See, heat from the Big Bang still permeates the universe today, and scientists can observe it as this faint glow of deep space microwaves. This is the cosmic microwave background, and it contains uh, what some scientists dub, quote, a fossil record of of every early universe. I like that idea, that fossil record. Yeah, I really like the fossil record analogy, too, yeah. And the instrumentation aboard this device is pretty crazy. Uh, the official arcade website makes the following comparison. Imagine warming your hands by the light of the stars in the night sky. Mm. You know, standing out on a cold day, raising your palms up, and warming yourself by that those distant pinpricks of light. Impossible, right? Now imagine trying to detect the heat from stars we can't even see. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, the, the light from those stars just turn into nothing but radio waves after a while. That's why NASA's Goddard Space uh, Flight Center designed Arcade to measure temperature differences as small as one one-thousandth of a degree in the background, only three degrees above absolute zero, while also avoiding confusing data from everything else in the universe. So the entire instrument inside this uh, ballooned, uh, lifted package was cooled with liquid helium to to a, to a temperature of 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. So they made it as cold, if not a little colder, than the CMB. So there's no confusion uh, for its seven cryogenic radiometers. So July 22nd, 2006, successfully launched this sucker from Columbia's scientific balloon facility in Palestine, Texas. It ascended to an altitude of 120,000 feet or 37 kilometers, and after four hours of observation, parachuted back to Earth. Oh, and what did Dr. Alan Kogert, a research scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and head of the Arcade Project, find? Well, he found something that was absolutely astounding. And honestly, he was just hoping to find confirmation of the cosmic microwave background and gather a few new radio emission points. But he says, quote, the universe really threw us a curve. Instead of the faint signal we hoped to find, there was this booming noise six times louder than anyone had predicted. He says the energy alone that could generate this level of signal is incomprehensible. And uh, I've seen accounts of it. Uh, it's been described as a static-like noise coming from all directions. And the discovery is based on noise measurements in the microwave frequency bands at 3, 8, 10, 30, and 90 gigahertz, which peaked in NASA's detectors at 3 and 8 gigahertz. So uh, they were observing about 7% of the sky 
when they had this booming sound come to them. Yeah, and so we have a big fat mystery on our hands here. Um, it's uh, it, it's important to to drive home that this is not like a one time signal. This isn't like the wow signal or the bloop mm-hmm. uh, that came from the, the ocean that we've discussed in the past. Uh, this is a, a, a universe wide phenomenon that is ongoing. But arcade was the first instrument to, me- to that was actually able to measure uh, the radio sky with enough precision to detect this uh, mysterious signal. Uh, and ironically, the roar hides the signal uh, or seems to hide the signal from the earliest stars, thus interfering with the very mission we originally sent Arcade up for to begin with. All right. So let's take a quick break. And we come back. We're not going to provide a, an answer to this mystery. We're not going to solve oh, no. it. Uh, but we're going to we're going to talk about some of the ideas that have been thrown out there, most of which are have been shot down as well. But I think the uh, the theories, even the ones that ultimately don't hold up, help to illuminate what might be happening and just the sphere of possible answers. All right, we're back. Have you ever seen those maps that say you are here and yes. it shows you in the middle of the Milky Way? Oh, no. I was just thinking about the zoo, but okay. The zoo? Yeah. You are here at the zoo? Yeah, I, I get lost enough there without even taking into account the Ah, uh, I yeah. see the map. Right. But you maybe have seen those illustrations before, which say, hey, by the way, the solar system is located within the Milky Way galaxy. So it makes sense that one of the first places we would look to to try to solve the mystery of the roar is, of course, the Milky Way, because it produces something called synchrotron radiation, which is electromagnetic energy emitted by charged particles. We're talking about electrons and ions that are moving at speeds close to that of light when their paths are altered as by magnetic fields. It is so-called because particles moving at such speeds in a variety of particle accelerator that is known as synchrotron produce electromagnetic radiation of this sort. Now, okay, great. It's creating electromagnetic radiation. We can pick up on that as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it doesn't look like our galaxy is the culprit because according to Dale, Dale Fixon, a University of Maryland research scientist and a member of the arcade team, infrared radiation goes hand-in-hand hand with synchrotron radiation. And the already measured amount of the Milky Way's infrared radia- radiation is not on the same order of magnitude required to create that kind of roar. So already we can look at the Milky Way and say, no, you are not it. You are not the culprit. All right, so we, we slashed that one off the list. Um you know, Dale Fixon also looked into the idea that the roar could be emanating from the very first stars that Arcade was actually looking for, right? These first stars, thought to have formed about 13 billion years ago, didn't have any dust. Uh, that's because the first dust in our universe was formed within these very stars. So, in theory, possibly, these stars could have created a lot of synchrotron radiation without that correspondingly high amount of infrared radiation, which we would have theoretically already detected. So there's one possible loophole, but it's not an answer. You seem dubious about it. Well, uh, I mean, I'm I'm dubious about it. I, I trust Fixin on this. <laughs> I, if, if he says that uh, it's not a, a slam dunk, then I'm, I'm going to have to take his word for it. Wise. All right. What about other far-flung galaxies? Well, clusters of galaxies form by gravitational merger of smaller clusters and subclusters. And we know from radio telescope observations that sometimes there's the presence of large regions of diffuse 
steep spectrum synchrotron emission. And galaxies that emit more light at radio wavelengths than at visible wavelengths, these are known as radio loud galaxies. So there is this idea that there could be these radio loud galaxies out there that could have created the space roar. However, Kogart, uh, our man at Arcade, says, quote, typical radio galaxies can't account for the noise as you would need the entire universe filled of them to produce signal strengths this high, six times higher than the combined emission of all known radio sources in the universe. Or more specifically, as Fixin puts it, you'd have to pack them into the universe like sardines. <laughs> there wouldn't be any space left between one galaxy. A sardine universe. Not Again, not an answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, here's another theory. And this one, I, I, I do want to preface, is, uh, is out there. And it takes us a little more into the, the, the fringes of what we know and into some of the, uh, uh, the, the more uh, complex and... Uh, mind-melting. Uh, mind-melting theories uh, regarding uh, our universe and our place in the universe. American physicist David Brown um, has a take on space war that plays into cellular automaton and M theory. Okay. Cellular automaton is a whole area that we could, we could easily spend a whole podcast on. So I'm going to try and keep it short here. But, uh, this basically, this model involves the use of colored or shaded cells on a grid that evolve through a number of discrete time steps according to a set of rules based on the states of neighboring cells. So, you may have seen footage of this. It plays into the, the Game of Life um, experiment where it, it looks sort of like, I guess they were Digimon, the, the sort of little primitive computerized things where you'd mm-hmm. have like a little digitized pet. kind of looks like that except more abstract, little dancing pixels. Uh, and essentially, it's a model of complexity. Uh, it allows uh, uh, scientists to observe uh, complexity evolving so that cellular automaton serves as a general model of complexity, a level of complexity that ultimately, theoretically, is on par with our entire universe. And you could argue that the complexity that we see in reality could essentially begin as a little program of dancing squares on a computer screen. Okay. If you're still with got me, that, okay. That. All right. If, if you're still with me, that's that's the first slab on the sandwich. We are in a computer simulation. It, that's where it often leads to. It's okay. this idea that you can think of, in, in in a way, you can think of reality as a as a computer simulation based on on cellular automaton. But the next layer on the sandwich is M theory, a branch of string theory that presents a model for the basic structure of the universe and allows uh, for the existence of additional universes. So Brown argues that M theory describes the cellular automaton and that real photons are constantly leaving our universe to enter an alternate one. Uh, and this would mean that over time, the percentage of real matter in our universe uh, has decreased and the percentage of virtual matter or dark matter has increased. So this would mean there would have been more matter in the early universe, meaning much more radio noise. And that is what Arcade is detecting when it gazes through space and time to those early stars. Okay. <laughs> We are in a computer simulation. Right. A leaky one. A leaky one. And as a result, uh, well, I should say an indirect result of that is the space roar, which is really just uh, maybe photons exchanging energy between other universes. Yeah. Close? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. We're in the matrix. and uh, There you go. And there's this big crashing sound in the in the in the distance and that's uh 
pixels and programs being flushed out. Uh, meanwhile, there's a there's dark matter flowing back in. It's all very dramatic. It is. It's very dramatic. And again, it's uh, it's an out there theory, and it and it does not again solve our mystery. We're still left with this mystery of the space roar. And we may always be right. It may just be that we don't have the instruments that are sensitive enough to pick up on whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of the the great unknown. Maybe uh, you know, giving us the finger a little bit, saying you think, yeah, saying, eh, you you don't have it all. You don't have all the answers. And here, I'm just going to make a big loud raspberry noise at you, and and leave you with that. Try and figure this out, humans. So it's like a cosmic fart joke. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Right. The, the biggest fart joke in the universe. You know yeah. I like those catalogical jokes. <laughs> All right, well, let's put the space roar aside, and let's call over the robot and do a couple of listener mail. All right, this one comes to us from Alex. Alex writes in and says, Hi, my name is Alex. As part of my job, I tend to do a lot of driving, so podcasts like yours really keep me sane. For that, I thank you. Essentially, I just finished listening to your Mean World Syndrome episode, and I thought I would add to it. Recently, a game called Bloodborne was released. You can probably guess from the promo art, and he included this as nice, dark, dreary uh, image of uh, some dude with horns on his helmet and weapons and a dreary sort of dark fantasy, grim dark fantasy setting. A caped figure. Yeah. Uh, he says, you probably can guess from the promo art, it's not a pleasant feel-good game. Without giving any spoilers, the world the player is presented with is hopeless, desolate, and depressing. It's a very good game. However, I found that after I played for long periods, I became very forlorn and quiet. I found myself feeling apathetic and even resentful towards the upcoming general election. I live in the U.K., I've actually stopped playing, despite how good the game is, as a direct result of feeling so crappy straight after playing. Listening to your podcast just after noticing this was a great little coincidence, and one I thought I'd share. Keep doing what you guys are doing. I look forward to every single episode. You don't have to read this out. I just wanted to give you guys what I thought was a fresh perspective and example. Cool, Alex. Thanks for writing in about that. Uh, we also got some, fe- we got a lot of feedback from our episode of the Gordian Knot of Race. We expected to get a lot of feedback. We got confirmation of unconscious bias from listeners. We got some people saying that unconscious bias doesn't exist and mm-hmm. we're not too happy that we covered it. I think we had at least one person say that they don't see race. We did. And uh, so we thought we would share this one from Melissa. She says, uh, and this came through Facebook, says, I just finished listening to your podcast on the Gordian Knot of Race. This is a topic that has always fascinated me. How something so seemingly inconsequential as how you look could and does affect all areas of life. I thought you did a very good job of talking about unconscious racial bias and how things woven into our culture can affect how we feel about a person, even if we don't know it. I took the test linked on the landing page for the podcast, and I thought the results were very interesting and much different than what I was expecting. For some background, I live in a very heavily white area. There are very few minorities of any race. In my childhood, as well as today, best friend is mixed black father, white mother. I love my friend dearly, and I have very few early memories without her in them. We met at about age four or five. And as a result, I have very few memories that do not include her family. I expected that I would have a slight preference for white faces. She's talking about the IAT, which is the implicit association test that she took. 
slight preference for white faces simply due to culture, cultural factors and what a white area I live in and grew up in. However, when the results came back, they came back as your data suggests little to no automatic preference between African American and European American. This greatly surprised me and got me thinking, could my lack of unconscious prejudice have something to do with my best friend of so many years and her family? Could it be a reflection of how having been exposed to them at such a young age and caring so deeply for them, I developed the necessary empathy to get such a score? Could this mean that if more schools had a more even mix or neighborhoods were not so prominently one race over the other, unconscious race preferences could go away as well. All rather abstract questions with no easy answers. I was just curious if you found any information about this in your research. Keep up the great work. You are always a fun listen, Uh, Melissa. So thank you, Melissa. That's an excellent firsthand account of not only the results that you got on your test, but what your own experience um, has been. Indeed. And if uh, if anyone else wants to take the IAT, you can either, of course, find it, search, or uh, I've also we also included a link to it on the landing page for the Gordian Knot of Race episode. Now, I'm I'm not surprised that at uh, you know such a young age with her experience with her friend who is of mixed race that she would have those results because I'm thinking back to the episode when we were talking about kids. I believe as young as seven begin to express unconscious bias. Yes. Um, so you can see how the positive side of that could be reflected. And that, that's why I thought it was so great that she shared that with us because it is the positive side. Indeed. It's good to hear about the, uh, the positive side of that coin. So there you have it. We'll send the robot back to its uh, chamber once more. And hey, uh, in the meantime, if you would like to check out more episodes of the podcast, if you want to check out blog posts, videos, links on the social media accounts, whatever, you can find it all at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And if you have some thoughts you'd like to share with us, please send them our way. You can do that by emailing us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 